Please join me in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this church body whom you've brought together. We pray that you continue to strengthen our unity and foster relationships among us that reflect the love that you have for us. As we return to our core values, guide us and recenter us, give us insight from the example of the early church, and may that lead us to better glorify you and serve those around us. Thank you for providing the return of the women's retreat and bless the women in our body who are there. Keep them safe on their return today and inspire us all through the renewal that you have brought about in them. Bless Eugene's teaching this morning. Open our hearts to be stirred by what you will share through him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, in preparation for Eugene's sermon, I'll be reading Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion, for there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. Eugene, please come share the word with us. Why don't we give Shay a round of applause for his first time hosting for us. Well, as we begin our message this morning, you know, our brother James shared a little bit about um, a mentor of his. I'd like to share a story about one of my own personal heroes. On May 21st, 1997, at the Radio City Music Hall in New York City, Fred Rogers received a Lifetime Achievement Award for his work on the children's program, Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. As he took center stage before hundreds of celebrities and media personalities, he said, oh, it's a beautiful night in this neighborhood. <laughs> so many people have helped me to come to this night. Some of you are here, some are far away, some are even in heaven. All of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Then he asked those in attendance, would you just take along with me 10 seconds to think of the people who have helped you become who you are, those who have cared about you and wanted what was best for you in life? Mr. Rogers promised to watch the time for everyone, and maybe because they grew up watching his show, they listened. They held silence and thought about those who had loved them into being. Many began to cry. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm no Fred Rogers, but would you do this with me right now? Just take 10 seconds of silence to think about those who have loved you into being. I'll watch the time. We can start now. All of us have special ones who have loved us into being. Isn't that true, brothers and sisters? Even if it was ju with just one person, we've all been shaped and formed by our relationships. We were created for relationship by the triune God who exists in perpetual relationship. And so it is in relationship that we are shaped and formed and loved into being. But what being are we becoming? In whose image are we being shaped and formed and loved? 
For Christians, the being into whose image we are being shaped and formed and loved is Christ. We are becoming, as Dallas Willard put it, who Jesus would be if he were us. The biblical authors describe this process of becoming like Christ in many ways, but perhaps the primary way is through the concept of discipleship. Christians are Christ's disciples, little reflections of Jesus who follow his example. To be a Christian is to be engaged in the process of discipleship, and this not only for ourselves, but for others as well. Remember the commission the Lord Jesus Christ gave to the apostles. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, for many churchgoers, bearing witness is equated with evangelism. And evangelism has come to mean nothing more than delivering a gospel presentation and doing an altar call at the end for people to make a decision for Christ. But this is not how the early believers would have understood the phrase, bear witness. Consider the Apostle Matthew's version of the Great Commission. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. The Gospel writer Luke's record of Jesus' commission to the apostles complements the Apostle Matthew's. Though their wording is different, their commissions truly are one and the same. To be Jesus' witnesses is to make disciples of those who receive our testimony. Every genuine believer is called to be Christ's witness. And every genuine believer is called to discipleship, both for themselves and for others. This calling to discipleship is reflected in our PBCC family values. Our mission as a church is knowing Jesus and making him known, and we do this through discipleship, through relationships. But what exactly is discipleship? Well, Matthew's version of the Great Commission includes a definition. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. At its core, discipleship is about obedience. To be a disciple of Christ is to learn his values in order to follow his example. This is what happens in the lives of everyone who receives the gospel of Christ. They grow in obedience to Christ by the power of his grace. As the apostle Paul explained to Titus, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. To quote my last sermon, Education without transformation is self-deception. Study without submission is self-deception. Knowledge without obedience is self-deception. And to this we could add, conversion without change is self-deception. Becoming a Christian without becoming like Christ is self-deception. Christ-likeness, we could even say, is the very purpose of Christianity as Paul explained to the Roman believers. 
And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, we might be tempted to stop here. Many churchgoers do. Some might even be surprised that there is a verse after this declaration that God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. But what is his purpose for us? Verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. What is God's purpose for us, brothers and sisters? Conformity to Christ. The good purpose for which God works in all things is our conformity to Jesus Christ. The good purpose for which God created the universe and directed every event of history and our lives is the formation of many brothers and sisters who resemble and who participate in relationship with their older brother, the firstborn of heaven, Jesus Christ. Christlikeness is the purpose of Christianity. Christlikeness not in part, not in some ways, not just on Sunday mornings, but in every part, in every way, in every moment of every day. We're talking about total transformation, brothers and sisters. Dallas Willard puts it this way in his book, Renovation of the Heart, Putting on the Character of Christ. The revolution of Jesus is in the first place and continuously a revolution of the human heart or spirit. It is one that changes their ideas, their beliefs, their feelings and habits of choice, as well as their bodily tendencies and social relations. It penetrates to the deepest layers of their soul. We call this revolutionary, transformative process discipleship or spiritual formation. Again, Willard from his book, The Great Omission, reclaiming Jesus' essential teachings on discipleship. Spiritual formation in Christ is a process whereby the inmost being of the individual, the heart, the will, or spirit, takes on the quality or character of Jesus himself. Now, <clears throat> now, the process of discipleship <clears throat> or spiritual formation implies a relationship between the disciple and the ultimate discipler, Jesus Christ. This relationship is mediated through the Holy Spirit dwelling in the heart of the disciple. But discipleship also involves relationships with other people. How can we be sure that we are following the Holy Spirit and truly becoming more like Christ? Can a real change of attitude and behavior be kept private and hidden from others? Can it even happen at all in a relational vacuum? Like the proverbial tree falling in a forest totally unheard, if a Christian changes and no one sees it, hears it, or feels it, have they really changed at all? For discipleship to be safe, and for it to be sincere, it must involve other people. It must extend beyond the inner world of the individual into the external world of human interaction. Yet again, Willard, spiritual formation cannot, in the nature of the case, be a private thing because it is a matter of whole life transformation. You need to seek out others in your community who are pursuing the renovation of the heart. This observation is not only logical, it is also biblical. 
We see it in the picture of the early church Luke presents us in the second chapter of Acts. How did the early believers do discipleship? Well, let's take a closer look at today's verses. To understand today's verses, we first need to understand the passage in which they are situated. Here is the text of Acts chapter 2, 41 through 47 in its entirety. You don't have to read it. I just want to show you some of its structural features. The first thing I want you to see is that a phrase at the beginning of the passage is repeated at the end. The phrase is added to their number. Both the first and the last verses of the passage are about God increasing the size of the early church. That's not the only significant repetition. In the second verse of the passage, Luke used a Greek word translated as they devoted themselves. This verb is used again in the second to last verse. This repetition is masked in English because the same Greek word is translated differently depending on the version you have. In the New International Version, they devoted themselves becomes they continued. Luke tells us what the early believers devoted themselves to and continued doing in these verses in yellow. We'll return to that in a moment. But for now, all we have left in the, is the middle of the passage. And we shouldn't expect to find any more significant repetitions, and we don't. Now, if we take these color-coded sections of the text and we rearrange them like so, then we get our favorite literary device at PBCC, a chiasm. (laughs) This passage has a chiastic structure. It begins and ends in roughly the same way, forming onion-like layers of content. In this onion, there are three layers. The core, which seems to be about the power at work in the early church. The middle layer, which seems to be about the devotion of the early church. And the outermost layer, which seems to be about the growth of the early church. God willing, we will look at the power of the early church next week and the growth of the early church the week after. Our focus today is on this middle layer of the passage where Luke tells us and tells us again what the church was devoted to. Let's read this all together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God. Luke tells us and tells us again that the early believers devoted themselves to four things. We saw the first one in my last sermon. The early believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The early believers' devotion to the apostles' teaching resurfaces in verse 46, albeit obliquely. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. The temple courts refers to the various structures that made up the temple compound in Jerusalem. Commentators believe that most of the apostles' public teaching took place here, at least initially. The early believers gathered daily in the Jerusalem temple to hear the apostles' teaching, and so we see affirmed that the early believers were devoted to meeting together for God's word. What else were the early believers devoted to? Well, verse 42 continues. They devoted themselves to fellowship. The believer's devotion to fellowship is repeated in verse 46. They continue to meet together. The word for fellowship in Greek is koinonia. 
It is defined as a close association involving mutual interests and sharing. It can also be translated as communion or close relationship or sharing and participation. These verbal ideas are core to its meaning. We could say then that a koinonia is a group of people drawn by common interest into a close-knit community. A Christian koinonia, then, is a community of believers who share in the common goal of Christ-likeness and in the common empowerment of the Holy Spirit. They each participate in the life of the one God, which draws them into participation into one another's lives. The early believers were devoted to engaging in this koinonia, Sharing the same goal of Christ-likeness and united under the apostles' teaching, they were devoted to one another, to meeting together, to learning together, to worshiping God together. Now, it wasn't always easy. The rest of Acts and the New Testament shows that there were issues that divided the early believers, at least temporarily. They had to work through many tough questions together, theological questions, cultural questions, personal and relational questions. Not everyone liked the answers that they came to. Some left the church. Some tried to do it on their own. Some syncretized with the culture around them. Some gave up Christianity altogether. But not all. Many didn't because they understood that the God who loved them loved their attempts to love him like a parent loves their children's drawings of them. They understood that it wasn't their rightness that saved them, but God's righteousness. It wasn't their understanding, but God's compassion. So they relied on God's grace, and they persevered through times of disagreement with earnest and honest dialogue. A bit like what we've been going through for the past several months, regarding the topic of women in church leadership. Listening to our elders and pastors share their decisions and how they arrived at them at last night's discussion forum, honestly, brothers and sisters, it brought me to tears. Because that's what it revealed to me, that you are truly my brothers and sisters. Even if we don't always agree, even if I don't always agree with you and you don't always agree with me, God is bigger than our disagreements. He is big enough for us to accept that we don't know everything and may disagree on some things, but are united by the one thing we all know to be true. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And in this way, we are the spitting image of the early believers nearly 2,000 years later. They committed themselves to meeting together as the body of Christ despite their differences. And their commitment to one another did not stop at the temple courts. Verse 42 again. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Verse 46. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Breaking bread was and still is an idiom for sharing a meal. Not a symbolic meal. Not a ritual meal, not a metaphoric meal, but a real, physical, tangible meal. The early believers were devoted to spending time with one another, doing the most basic, ordinary, commonplace thing people do, and that is to eat. They ate together, which means they also cooked together. 
They set tables together. They counted how many were coming, and they pulled out enough chairs to seat everyone together. They passed plates together. They talked with their mouths full together. They offered last bites to one another and argued with one another over who would host next time and how many pitas to bring. They washed dishes together and they threw out the trash together. They made sure to save some for someone's auntie on the other side of town and they delivered it together. They laughed together. They cried together. They fought together, picked up the broken plates together, complained together, apologized together. They lived together and they did this, brothers and sisters, in their homes. Luke makes it a point to tell us that the early believers brought their fellowship home with them from the temple courts. They brought their fellowship into their private spaces, into their living rooms and kitchens. The fellowship of the early believers spanned the theological mysteries of the apostles' teachings and the basic, mundane crumbs and dust and dirt of everyday life. And they were simply following Jesus' example. Remember the first communion. Many of you have been taught, and rightly so, that at the Last Supper, the first communion, Jesus took the Jewish observance of the Passover meal and reinterpreted it, its religious significance around himself. For churchgoers, breaking bread is indelibly etched into our minds as a reference to this event. But remember also what Jesus did at this meal. Not only did he redefine the ritual, but he also modeled a new way of observing it. He washed the disciples' feet. The sacred meal became embodied in the profanity of a loincloth used to wipe filthy toes. Holiness penetrated the household chore. And like the temple curtain, not only had the barrier between God and sinners been torn in two, but also the separation between sacred and secular, the spiritual and the mundane. Jesus kept doing this over the next six weeks. On the day he resurrected, he appeared to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, only revealing his identity to them when he broke the bread for dinner. And when he appeared to his disciples on the beach, he grilled some fish, ate a few bites, and then reestablished Peter, the rock of the church. What did Jesus' breath smell like when he told Peter to feed his lambs? Fishy? Holy? What's the difference? The early believers understood the point Jesus was making and shared communion with one another around their dinners. There was no difference between the Lord's table and their table fellowship. All was Christ's from temple court to dining table. Now, most of us may remember, some of us may remember that the Corinthian believers got in trouble for not taking communion seriously at their gatherings. Paul had some words for them in 1 Corinthians 11. But Paul never intended for them to stop combining the meals and so sequester communion in the sanctity of Sunday service that its meaning no longer penetrated their meals at home. No, whether eating or drinking, he said, in the temple or at home, everywhere the early believers went was to become a place where God could be glorified and encountered. Because he lived within each of them, brothers and sisters. And being together was enough to form them into his likeness. But how? How does simply being together in sacred and profane spaces form us into the image of Christ? 
Well, being in relationships with others that go beyond Sunday morning pleasantries, as much as I like them, it forces us to practice the things we say we believe. Anyone can be kind. Anyone can be warm and friendly. Anyone can be that person for a church service. But when life drags us through the mud, when it bleeds us with a thousand cuts or one big one, when work is work and the kids are the kids, when the food is burnt and the toilet is overflowing, when conversations end in misunderstanding, when the bank account is lower than we thought it was, that's when our beliefs are put to the test and Christ-likeness is either formed or resisted. That's when we, what we believe at our gut level surfaces and can be shaped and formed and loved into what it was meant to be. Christ-likeness manifests in and through and because of the bumps and the stumbles of everyday life and interactions. Think back to the person or the people that you remembered during those 10 seconds of silence. How did they shape you? How did they form you? How did they love you into being? Was it by the things they taught you? Was it through the knowledge they shared with you? Perhaps, and perhaps those played an important part, but I would wager that their impact on your life was most felt in the moments when they shared their lives with you when they let you into their private spaces, when they invited you into their lived reality, into their thoughts and questions and experiences. It wasn't exactly osmosis, but something real rubbed off on you and became part of you and brought you closer to who God always meant for you to be. They let you in and they shared themselves with you. And they listened to you and you were changed by it. This was the early believer's experience as well. Again, verse 42, they devoted themselves to prayer. In 46, they, every day they continued praising God. Anyone who has read the Psalms knows that the line between prayer and praise is thin. Both are the honest heart cries of God's people to their God. One often turns into the other. As we cry out to God for help or call on him for comfort or simply listen for the whispers of his spirit, we often rediscover and remember who God is to us, who God has been to us, who God will be for us, and we worship. And sometimes in worship, we feel in our hearts something we need to tell him a hurt that's gone unnoticed or a need we are just beginning to recognize, and so we pray to God. The early believers devoted themselves to prayer and to praise, to honestly sharing their hearts with God. And we could say a lot about prayer and praise, but what I want to focus on is that they did this together. The early believers certainly prayed and praised on their own, but they also did both together. And that means that they learned to listen to one another. They learn to share their burdens with one another and to create an environment where sharing burdens wasn't bad, embarrassing, or shameful. 
They learned to receive one another's stories with open, empathetic hearts, not rushing to correct or to fix, but to come alongside one another and to pray, to travail, to struggle on one another's behalf for one another's needs. And having bowed together in prayer, they also rose together in worship. When the answers came, when the hurt was healed, when the trial passed, having been down on their knees together, they rose up together in prayer praise. But it all began with listening. It all began with listening, with enough grace to receive one another without judgment or condemnation. The New Testament letters document how the early believers wrestled with themselves and with one another, wrestled against their prejudices and judgmentalism, wrestled and learned to receive one another with ears that were quick to hear and tongues that were slow to speak. The early believers learned to love one another, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in Life Together. Just as love to God begins with listening to God's word, our love for others is learning to listen to them. The early believers loved one another. They listened to one another. They prayed together, and they praised together. And so we see that the early church was devoted to not one, but to four things. The apostles' teaching as a foundation of their spiritual formation and discipleship, but also to fellowship in the temple, to breaking of bread in their homes, and to praying and praising God together. These commitments brought the early believers into relationships with one another that the Holy Spirit used to form them, shape them, mold them, and love them into conformity to Christ. And this is the tradition that we want to continue here at PBCC. We believe believers are formed profoundly by their relationships with God, but also with one another. And we believe the goal of this formation is becoming like Jesus Christ. And I believe, and I hope you agree, that the early church showed us how to do this through relationships grounded in our shared worship and experience of God, through relationships that reach into the corners of our lives and fill them with Christ in us, through relationships where we create space for one another to be heard and received, where we pray for one another and praise God together through relationships that form us and shape us and love us into being. But this is a far cry from where much of the church finds itself today. Dallas Willard observes in The Great Omission that for at least several decades, the churches of the Western world have not made discipleship a condition of being a Christian. One is required, I'm sorry, one is not required to be or to intend to be a disciple in order to become a Christian. And one may remain a Christian without any signs of progress toward or in discipleship. Now, we could replace the word discipleship with Christ-likeness in this quotation. Christians are no longer accepted to be Christ-like expected to be Christ-like by those outside of the church or even sometimes inside of it. We are at the point where identifying as a Christian says more about how we vote than about how we live and love. And for those who still believe Christians should be Christ-like, it seems, it seems, we've accepted that it seems so unattainable that it actually borders on pride 
to think that it could actually be possible. Who would dare be so arrogant as to think they could actually become more like Jesus? For many churchgoers, discipleship has been relocated from the course requirements of Christianity to the extra credit portion of the syllabus. <laughs> discipleship is good if you really want to show Professor Jesus how engaged you are, but it is by no means necessary to get a passing grade in faith. Many would even dare to change places with Christ and conform him to our image to disciple Jesus, as you will hear about a little bit more in two weeks. For far too many, Christ is a puppet we ventriloquize to affirm who we are and how we live so that we never need to change or be in intentional formational relationships with others. Puppet Jesus affirms the unwillingness felt by many to engage deeply with those around them. As soon as Sunday service ends, Puppet Jesus assures them, church is over, time to get back to real life. And real life these days is hard enough as it is, and you're so far from your own personal goals, do you really have room in your life for people you don't already want in your life? Puppet Jesus made in the image of our ruggedly individualistic, self-reliant, egocentric consumer culture, wants to know why we should bother with relationships, especially new ones, or ones with people we don't like, or ones with people who will take more from us than they will give to us. The true Jesus did not tell his disciples try and make disciples, but it's okay if it doesn't really happen. I get it, you're busy, they're busy, and it's hard work letting people in to lead them or to be led by them. No, that's not what the true Jesus said. No, Jesus commanded the early church to make disciples and promised to give them the power to do it. And the apostles and the early believers took Jesus at his word. They devoted themselves to discipleship through relationships and not to spoil a future sermon. The results were beautiful. Brothers and sisters, let us follow their example. By the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, as we will see next Sunday, God willing, we can do this. By God's grace, we can make disciples of ourselves and of others together, just as the early church did. Willard urges us, individuals and local congregations of disciples must put in place the principles and absolutes of the New Testament churches, and they will certainly see the corresponding fruits and effects. Jesus did not give us a plan for spiritual formation that will fail, and he has the resources to see to it that it does not. By God's grace, we will not fail, brothers and sisters. Our calling is clear, the Spirit is with us, and Jesus is calling. Let us be a church that makes disciples through relationships. Let us commit ourselves to meeting together. Not only here on Sunday mornings, but in our homes, in our private spaces, in the corners of our lives where we can model and watch and learn and share and listen and confess and pray and praise together until we are shaped by the Holy Spirit in you and the Holy Spirit in me into the likeness of Jesus Christ over all of us. As the author of Hebrews put it, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching 
I'd like to invite the praise team to return to the platform. And I'd like to invite each of you to take another moment with God. Another 10 seconds, at least, to ask him, is there someone you want me to help disciple? Is there someone you want me to help disciple? Oh, Eugene, I could never be a discipler. You already are. The spirit is already in you. And you are already forming the people around you by the way you interact with them. You are already discipling them. The only question is into whose image. Is there someone you want me to be intentional about helping disciple? Is there more than one person? Is there a group of people you would like me to invest in or to learn from? Is there someone you want me to help disciple or someone I should ask to help disciple me? Now perhaps there's someone new to PBCC that God wants you to welcome into the community. Perhaps as a newcomer or visitor, God is nudging you to get to know. Maybe he's encouraging you to get in touch with Mark and Michelle Landreth to join the monthly newcomers dinners that they host each month in their home. When I first came to PBCC, I was welcomed and drawn in so quickly. But I noticed something interesting. I would ask people that I met how long they'd been coming to the church. And I heard a, several, uh, a similar response several times. Oh, I, I'm pretty new to PBCC. I've only been coming here for two years, three years, four years. I heard someone say, four years, and I'm still new to this church. That's not everyone's experience, to be sure. But isn't it an interesting one to notice? Is there something that we can do about that? Or maybe God is moving you in a different direction. Perhaps God is placing on your heart someone you don't know by name, or maybe an age group or demographic within PBCC that he wants you to connect with for your discipleship and for theirs. The children, the youth, the college-aged, the young adults, the young families, the young at heart. Maybe there's a connection group for you to join, or maybe there's one for you to start. Something on the sheet that you received when you came in or something missing from it. I know these are hard questions, but I'm asking you anyway. Join me in asking God, who would you like to help become? Who would you like me to help become who they were meant to be? Who will you ask to do the same for you? Let's take 10 seconds. I'll keep time. Whatever God's answer for you, he will give you all you need to obey. So let us obey. So receive now this benediction. As you go from this place, may the Holy Spirit empower you to consider how you may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, how you may continue and not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, how you may encourage one another 
all the more as you see the day approaching. May God bless you. Be well.